Uh, good afternoon. Uh, this is James Vota. I'm an environmental partner here at Kellen Heckman. Uh, welcome to the January uh, Tosca 3030. This is a, a series of sort of a short 30-minute uh, quick update on, on uh, topical, timely Tosca topic uh, once a month or so. Um, today we're going to talk about the Tosca 6H rule. This is the risk management rules for PBTs. We're going to sort of talk about the, the, the PBT rule uh, and I think while the, the this is a rule that has been proposed, so we're going to talk a little bit about you know, the specific proposal. We're going to talk a little bit more about, I think, the process. Uh, the process is going to be instructive, I think, to the, the issues that, that uh, the agency is going to be uh, trying to resolve over the next few months as they work through the rule and you know, any sort of subsequent uh, disputes that, that arise. Uh, but I think also the, some of the issues that the agency has, has run into, sort of the analytical uh, and other issues that have arisen in the context of this rule, are all relevant to, uh, I think, the great you know, majority of, of um, upcoming risk management rules for chemicals that have gone through the full risk evaluation process. So uh, try to, I think, uh, grab some lessons learned, what we know so far, uh, from from the PBTs. So just basically then we're going to do a little background, try to put this rule into the context of the other work streams that are going on uh, at the agency, uh, talk about the, the risk management uh, decision-making process, both generally and then for the PBTs in particular, the uh, run through um, what's been proposed for the PBTs, and then try to spend some time then like really try to identify I think, where the, the issues lie uh, going forward. So, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of activity going on at EPA on different uh, risk evaluation streams. This is sort of the, the step in, in trying to identify whether there are risks that warrant some kind of control. Uh, we're talking today really about the next stage. This is the risk management uh, work streams where EPA has identified that uh, some kind of risk that warrants control exists um, and the process then of deciding what those controls are. Um, Currently, you know, EPA has been, or in the recent past, has been working on um, risk management for chemicals that were analyzed prior to the full uh, Lautenberg Amendment uh, process for, for looking at risks of existing chemicals. So these were done, these were pre-Lautenberg risk assessments, uh, some of which have gone forward. And uh, coming up, uh, you know, starting in June, there will be at least some portion of the first 10 chemicals that you know, if, if EPA is able to stay on its schedule, the first some of the first 10 chemicals that have gone through that full risk evaluation process uh, will then you know begin the um, the uh, risk management stage, or where again EPA is trying to control the risk that they've identified as being unreasonable uh, with the conditions of use. The one we're talking about today is the third category. It's under TOSCA 6H, and it's a it's a special section session um, for uh, for chemicals that are, are identifying the statute um, as PBTs, or they're persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic. Um, the statute sort of carves these out for, for expedited action um, and uh, it opens them up then in terms of risk control, risk management control, um, and, you know, everything from uh, warnings to complete bans. Um, EPA uh, is required by the statute did a, a timely proposal for risk management controls for these PBTs in June. So that is what's pending now. 
um, but they're required by statute to have a final rule done by December of, of this year. Um, so uh, which, you know, which chemicals are subject to this expedited action for the PBTs? So statutes set out uh, sort of very specific criteria, um, essentially based on an assumption that these uh, were chemicals for which you know, risks, you know, the, the fact of risks were known. Uh, it was just a matter of, of, uh, of control. So chemicals that they're regulated are those that, um, you know, of those are listed in the TOSCA work plan, the 2014 uh, work plan. Um, and, and the work plan, you know, for, for those who aren't familiar, was the, the list of chemicals that, that the agency had identified, uh, prior, you know, while uh, the, we were all sort of working towards some kind of amendments uh, to, to the TOSCA statute. Uh, not clear when that was going to happen, but it was the agency's move to try and take action without um, some of the, the new authorities they have now. But it was uh, essentially a database of, of 60 chemicals based on sort of available information that EPA prioritized really for further evaluation. It was a screening set um, of, of chemicals. So based on that sort of that screening, pre-identified screening set, then um, the, you know, the other criteria that is from the 90 chemicals on that list, they're the ones that EPA had as part of that screening process um, identified as, as toxic um, and then also either moderately or highly persistent or moderately or highly bioaccumulative. In fact, and, you know, they needed to be actually either both high in those categories or one high and one moderate. Either way, if they sort of met those three criteria, then they were uh, they would be um, uh, if they get scored that way, then they could they would sort of satisfy this criteria. Um, and I, I spoke there a little bit. It's important that that um, what the statute says is not that EPA should uh, use the scoring that was done in these categories for. Um, uh, I'm sorry, in in the work plan because EPA scored them, you know, back in 2014. But that EPA should use, you know, look at that list of chemicals, but then use the methodology that EPA used at that time uh, to to make a. And I think one perspective is to make a new judgment today about whether they still met those criteria. So, in addition to sort of meeting these PBT criteria, then uh, they, they also EPA also needed to find that there was exposure to the general population or environment uh, based on a new exposure survey and that the chemicals weren't otherwise excluded either because they were metals or they were already being addressed under some other TOSCA provision. Uh, so based on this or the, these sorted criteria then, EPA identified in 2016 just five chemicals uh, from the work plan that met um, all of the other criteria uh, in EPA's judgment at the time. And they, they, you know, this is, well, these are flame retardants. They really identified DECA-BDE, PIP3-1, We've got the, the list here. And again, we're not going to try to focus so much on the individual chemicals, although we'll, we'll, we'll tell you what EPA did with them, but really it was sort of more about the process. So, um, you know, the, the standard process, you may have seen this EPA diagram, um, you know, other places, but the, the standard process before you get to sort of risk management decisions is a couple of years of really sort of data collection analysis. You've got um, a prioritization stage, and then a, a full, um, you know, three or three and a half year risk evaluation process with, you know, peer review, and only at the end of that time, with a pretty well developed record, did then um, is is the chemical then uh, put into the risk management stage, 
where the agency would um, then take actions they need to identify to eliminate the identified unreasonable risks. With the the PBTs, you know, the first two steps of this stage are are skipped. They go right from uh, right from the the work plan listing, the screening list, right to risk management. Um, and so you don't have that that same record, which we'll which as we'll talk about is is really important. Um, but in addition, um, there's additional criteria. Not only does EPA, as part of the risk management process, need to impose uh, restrictions that will eliminate the unreasonable risk, uh, but EPA also has to uh, to take measures that will reduce the exposure to the chemical uh, to the to the extent practicable. So again, so here, you know, the 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 judgment is that. Um, even without a showing of unreasonable risk, that there ought to be more control given uh, the sort of the persistent bioaccumulative character um, of the chemical. It's quite different than, than um, other chemicals that EPA is going to review. So, so what's lost? And I sort of started to talk about this already, but if you don't do the, uh, the full risk evaluation, as is done with the standard case, um, you know, you're missing. Uh, you get a very sort of incomplete kind of record, and that's got uh, creates some real problems. Um, you know, the standard. You know, the the standard risk assessment would. You know, there'll be a full hazard assessment that looks at all the information about the hazards of a chemical, integrated um, using you know weight of the evidence and uh, uh, methods to sort out for the best studies, and then those conclusions get get peer reviewed. For the PBTs, there's none of that. EPA had started with a screening set of information. As part of this rule, they uh, went out and they collected more hazard information, but all they have really are endpoints. There's just a collection of studies. There's no integration um, of sort of the significance of of those studies overall, um, you know, and as they relate to each other. It's just it's just um, just endpoints. So it's not not terribly helpful. And, and uh, the agency didn't even look at sort of persistence or bioaccumulative data as part of that process for, for, for these rules. Um, for in a standard risk assessment, we, they, they do a, a careful exposure assessment. It's, it's uh, intended to be quantitative. I guess we're, we're, we're seeing you know, now with the first 10, you know, the EPA is even struggling with it uh, in that context with a, with a long period to collect the information. Um, but, but you know, there's some uh, uh, effort here to, to have sort of quantitative exposure assessments to go along with the hazard assessment. For the PBT rules, the EPA didn't do that. It's really a very qualitative um, identification of exposure pathways, which was sort of the minimum that was required um, in order to be identified as, as a PBT. So it was sort of good enough for that piece. But as we'll, as we'll talk about, for the other kind of analytical steps that go into selecting the the control method, um, it's really, really turned out to be pretty inadequate for, I think, for, for some purposes. Um, then uh, with the standard risk evaluation, you're taking those first two parts and you get a risk characterization. You know, are there conditions of use where people or, or the environment is exposed above, uh, you know, relevant health, health thresholds? I mean, there, there's a conclusion about that and that conclusion gets peer reviewed. For the PBT rule, there is no risk characterization. I mean, you have mostly just identification of exposure points um, qualitatively. So very um, sort of, it's uh, not very good information about risk. 
And then again, you, then you don't have also don't have sort of the final judgment about whether, to the extent that there are risks, whether those are sort of unreasonable risks that warrant control, um, as would be the case with a standard risk evaluation. Um, there's uh, you know uh, no, no determination about risk uh, a, at all. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about more about that, but. Um, about sort of the significance of sort of the, the shortcomings in the record. But you know, to the extent then, you know, and this is true um, you know, both for other kinds of uh, 6A rules or other risk management rules and the PBT rules, you know, EPA under the amended statute has got a wide range of available tools to choose from in deciding, you know, the, the, the best way to uh, control the, uh, the identified risks, or in, in this case, both the identified risk uh, but also um, uh, exposure pathways to the to the uh, to the extent practicable. Um, and then the, the the method under the the statute then by which EPA sort of chooses among those controls in, in the particular circumstances um, is is to really identify a the, the, I think and and quantify and discuss really all of sort of the relative considerations for making that kind of a choice. And this is this is the the big change from uh, that's reflected in the statute in 2016 from the way it had been before. Uh, prior prior to the Lautenberg amendments, uh, EPA's obligation was to identify sort of the least burdensome way of accomplishing the the required risk management control. And what what happens now, in in lieu of that, is instead EPA first identifies for really all of the sort of the relevant considerations, and so it's. Uh, the characteristics of the risks of the substance, the environment, environmental and health effects, the extent of exposure, the benefits of the substance as it's used, but also um, looking at looking at sort of the rule and control alternatives. You know what the effects would be on the on the economy, effects on small business, um, technological innovation, and then um, trying to uh, then evaluating what effect the risk management rule would have on the environment. What are the sort of the environmental benefits of the control option that EPA is thinking about? And they also need to look at, um, um, I'll, well, we'll get that back in a second, but uh, looking, at, you know, looking at alternatives. So not only at, at the one control option, but also what the alternatives are. Again, these all become sort of balancing criteria. In the in the next stage, sort of step two, and is to look at this sort of record of, of facts or at least sort of conclusions about you know the options and the uh, impacts of different kind of control options and alternatives to uh, to, to make um, a selection and then justify that both in basis of the you know the costs and benefits, but considering the cost effectiveness and the effective uh, the impact on the economy. So um, again, it, this is a switch from the pre-Lautenberg rule where EPA was just required to find the least burdensome to a, a new method now where they're going to collect the information and make a judgment that balance, I think, uh, you know, the, the full range of criteria that are important to society. And everyone gets a, an opportunity then to, to comment on that and, and give their own views about whether the right balance was struck. But there's sort of a, a clear process with a, with a good uh, record necessary to support it. Um, for so th that that process applies for the section uh, the 6H these PBT rules, um, 
and and but there's there's an additional the, the additional criteria that we talked about is the second one on list list and that is not only must EPA sort of reduce um, uh, the the risk to the extent they've identified uh, risks but they also must reduce exposure to the extent practicable and the the the, the challenge for EPA for these PBT rules under Section 6H is they don't have a you know the the record for making either of these judgments. Um, is 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 difficult to to demonstrate uh, to the extent that EPA has not identified where the risks are or the unreasonable risks are that are associated with um, the, these five PBTs. It's hard to demonstrate that the control option they've uh, they've promoted, um, you know, satisfies and mitigates that risk. Now, the way they've responded to that is by essentially, as we'll talk about, they've essentially done uh, pretty much bans with exceptions. So they're sort of they they in the end they've kind of addressed it but um there is no no uh uh good way to sort of demonstrate that the risks have been been controlled the the other um um issue is 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 demonstrating that to the extent that it's not a complete ban that there are some exceptions or those are thought to be appropriate uh EPA needs to show that they nevertheless have uh, eliminated exposures to the extent practicable, and you know what is uh, practicable is, uh, I think, inherently uh, a sort of a cost-benefit analysis. You know what, uh, you know, at what cost do you get to sort of that next increment of control, um, or is it you know more appropriate because the the sort of the benefits of that additional um, you know measure of control would be. Uh, so extreme in relation to the, the cost of achieving it that, it that it's not warranted. So I think that that is sort of the, uh, the practicability, you know, balancing that happens at the edge where there are all sort of no, no good alternatives. And that's very difficult to do without a good record that shows about, you know, what are the sort of the risks um, of, of some, um, you know, leaving some exposure being, you know, less than completely uh, eliminated. And what are the benefits of achieving Know, that additional modicum of, of exposure reduction. Very difficult to show without the, the record that you would otherwise get with a risk evaluation. So uh, just, just quickly, and, and um, try to capture sort of the nature of, of, the, of the EPA's sort of proposed restrictions coming, uh, coming, coming out of the, the, in the proposed rule. So for, for DECA-BDE, that's essentially a ban um, with a couple of time-limited exemptions where uh, there were no sort of current um, alternatives, you know, suitable alternatives in in the agency's view, but they're going to be phased out. They, it's calculated that those can be, you know, phased in over the next couple of years. And ongoing um, exceptions for replacement parts, articles, and recycled plastics. For PIP 3 to 1, uh, essentially, again, there's sort of a broad band with some very narrow exceptions for uh, replacement auto parts, certain aviation fluids. Um, and there, the, uh, the, the judgment was based, again, on a sort of a practicability analysis that uh, it wouldn't be, there's no suitable alternative that could practically be implemented in, with any kind of reasonable time or reasonable cost. Um, for for PCTP, there's a uh, it's only present in the economy as an impurity and in other products. You've got a very sort of focused uh, uh, rule narrow directed at at, at that circumstance. Circumstance uh, for ACBD, it's not again it's another one that really has no current uses. And while it's it is present as a byproduct, 
Um, it is also very very heavily regulated by um, other other statutes, so that uh, EPA didn't feel that any additional regulation was warranted. That is, sort of existing rules are adequately um, regulated the, um, any kind of exposure, you know, to, at least to the extent practicable. Um, and then finally, for the TTBP, again, there they were some very specific uses. Rather than a broad ban, there's a ban on specific uses uh, in, in lubricants where there were alternatives, um, and then bans for consumer and sort of small commercial users of a chemical who, I guess, were thought, thought to be able to manage it appropriately in sort of fuel blending, uh, fuel blending uses. Okay. So, and again, I, I don't have enough time here, but I want to do sort of to run through, I think, sort of the issues that EPA is going to be facing and I've tried to divide these really into sort of sort of two categories. One is a set of of issues with the uh, proposed rules. They're really kind of unique to the 6H uh, PBT circumstance. And then another set that will be applicable to 6H, but it's also going to be applicable more broadly to you know the, the upcoming risk management rules for um, chemicals that have gone through the full risk evaluation, the prioritization and risk evaluation uh, process. So for uh, so for for the PBT rules, the, the first again is, is one I've sort of been harping on a little bit uh, all through um, this, this presentation, and that was EPA's decision that you know not to conduct some kind of a risk assessment. Again, the statute didn't require it to do a risk risk assessment. Um, it was sort of uh, you know it's expressly allowed you know not to do a risk assessment, but it actually is going to, it makes sort of the decision making about the control options and alternatives analysis. Uh, very difficult and and maybe difficult to defend. Um, in, in the rule, what they EPA took the view that you know, given this instruction that the you know, risk assessment wasn't required, they felt that um, they could sort of skip the the uh, decisional criteria, the decisional analysis parts that that um, uh, you know, would otherwise required sort of risk assessment to do. They've kind of done it, still approach those issues in a more qualitative fashion, but their view is that it's it was impliedly uh, allowed to be allowed to be skipped for for the PBTs. Um, I think the the issue of what's practicable. Looking at the comments, there are really very different views, two different sort of very different views about what practicable means in this context. One view is that you know anything that is sort of technologically possible, even at sort of a disproportionate cost, is is a practicable alternative. Um, and and those are the so that EPA needs to uh, impose those kinds of measures. The other is is more of a more of a balancing uh, view where you really need to look at whether the I guess the benefits of sort of the additional you know the marginal um, uh, additional uh, marginal bit of control uh, is is warranted by the cost of achieving it. You know what are really the benefits of of getting that little bit more that you might otherwise exempt. So that that's uh, an issue. And I think all of these things are sort of issues that are hanging out there. Um, the decision not to revisit the 2014 work plan characterization of, of what the, the P, B, and T criteria. And the EPA did not look back at the work that they had done, you know, 2012 and 2014, and coming up with a list that identified these five and, and a couple others as PBTs. And there's a couple of issues, you know, concerns with that. You know, one is that initial analysis. 
uh, was just sort of a screening analysis. It was not a rulemaking process. There was some opportunity to comment, but there was not a rulemaking process. And for some chemicals there was a, who added in 2014, there was no uh, opportunity to comment. And there was really so the basis for their listing, like the PIP 3 to 1, um, is really nowhere in their record. The other issue with that is that, you know, time has gone by. I mean, EPA, I mean, there's work that's been done between 2012 or 14 and 2019 when they're proposing this rule. And um, it was coupled with the agency's duty to use the best available information, you know, it's, it's uh, doubtful whether that was, you know, the, the right approach is to rely on this old, uh, these old conclusions. Um, Section Section 6G is uh, in the in the risk management rule is a provision that provides for uh, exceptions to to bans, um, and it is it's more relevant I think for circumstances where EPA recognizes that for a use uh, use that presents an unreasonable risk, nevertheless because under very very particular circumstances never nevertheless needs to be allowed to continue, um, but but the criteria to allow it under those circumstances. Are as you listing, uh, listed here is, is pretty significant. Really, sort of disruption of the economy, kind of the level of, of risks, and they're time limited. There's a suggestion in the comments that even for these PBT um, sex exceptions to like a complete ban, that they need to meet uh, these these much more stringent uh, 6G uh, exception criteria. And I think that that's an area that's going to be that's been disputed. Um, and then I guess the the uh, similar issue with replacement parts and articles. EPA is the statute allows uh, EPA as part of these risk management rules to exempt um, replacement parts and articles from from uh, restrictions. You know unless they contribute significantly to the risk. EPA has exempted some of those as part of the PBT rule, but because there is there's been no risk assessment, there, some of the comments have suggested EPA cannot rely on this provision and needs to um, regulate those. Uh, spare parts or uh, replacement parts and articles as well. Um, so uh, the last set that I've got here are sort of the, the broad issues that are, I think, coming out of this rule. They're also going to be issued for the upcoming Section 6A rules. Um, let's see. So uh, EPA sort of taking the position in the PBT rules that they're not going to regulate disposal uh, or occupational per, uh, exposure per se. They're going to regulate other kinds of uses, uh, but but not reach down and specifically regulate those activities, given that those are going to be regulated uh, under other authorities. The, the general issue of, reg, of addressing legacy risks, so this is the disposal or other kinds of risks that are associated with regulated chemicals that are already in commerce. Uh, we had a recent decision on, on one part of the framework litigation where the court you know, found that, that uh, future disposal of prior, uh, you know, uh, of, of regulated chemicals already in use uh, is something that needs that EPA needs to consider as part of its risk assessment. So that's going to be that's going to be an ongoing issue. Uh, the the absence of, of solid economic impact data. There is no requirement, unlike health and safety information, there's no requirement in the rule for EPA to go out and develop solid economic uh, impact data. There's no process for that, although it, it, it you know, does come up uh, when it comes to looking at alternatives and looking at the cost-effectiveness of a rule. Um, you need to have it, and looking at what was done in the PBT rule, 
again, EPA struggled, I think, in trying to do that analysis without sort of a, a good solid database of, for, for making decisions and, and um, evaluating uh, really in a quantitative way what the costs were and the impacts are going to be of the, of the proposals that they had and the alternatives. Um, related to that is that there's a disparity in the data quality. EPA had, to the extent it had okay data quality for looking at um, the, the, the front end of, you know, identifying where exposures were or maybe hazards were, and this would be much more the case, certainly much more the case um, in the upcoming rules that have much better quality. The EPA had uh, really very poor quality looking at the alternatives. Um, and so the result may be by looking with sort of a, a screening level look at alternatives, they may suggest that a, you know, a use or something may be banned because an alternative really in the end is going to turn out to have um, you know, uh, worse effects. So I think you know, that quality, uh, data quality disparity is going to be important. Um, Late recognition by manufacturers that their you know, their products are implicated by the the regulations. So this is not really a process issue, but there were several commenters who, even after you know two and a half years by EPA outreach by EPA, trying to get use and exposure information from industry, which they got quite a bit. There were still a number of companies um, at the end um, who you know were at that point uh, raising really for the first time the need to have special exceptions. Uh, recognizing you know, kind of late in the game that there was going to be impact on their on their um, uh, value change you know, by by some of the bans that were that were being proposed. So, you know, being aware of of you know how your value chain, your your supply chain is affected by uh, all these upcoming rules is really really important. And if you come there too late, it's too late really to develop the information. Um, I'll go. You know, the last ones again are are um, that have got listed here. Sort of regulation of of impurities and sort of low concentration. Sort of the the the, the presence of these chemicals in commerce that really aren't sort of the main uses, and they can be they can be significant. Anyone who's worked with PCBs will tell you that you know, not paying attention to those things can uh, be it's good for lawyers, but it can be very complicated for people who are trying to get uh, get business done. So. Um, well, we're we're about out of time. We've got um, uh, our our reach thirty thirty uh, coming up in about five minutes uh, by my my partner uh, Herb Stryker. If uh, in order to if you, if you signed up for both, um, you need to uh, log out of the webinar and log back in with a link provided to the reach thirty thirty. If you're on the phone and just want to listen, you can just stay on, or you can go to our event, the events page on our web page. You can get a link there to um, to get invited in to be able to see the presentation. Um, and I just want to point out, I just invite you also to to pay attention to I think the other sort of 3030 topics uh, presentations are coming up. I mentioned the Reach 3030. We also have an OSHA 3030 by my partner Manish uh, Rath, who is going to be next week um, at the sort of the same time. So uh, again, I want to. Just, Thank you for your um, uh, your attention to this, and if you're interested in the Reach 3030, please stand by. Thank you.